Well, thank you, Lisa, for that great reminder of God's faithfulness from Lamentations chapter 3. God's mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And God has been so faithful to us as a church to give us Adam and Lisa for these last seven and a half years. This has been a day that we've been anticipating for months now. It's a happy, sad day. A day of sadness as we say goodbye to Adam and Lisa here, or maybe just see you later. How's that? Makes it a little easier, see you later. But, um, but also a great uh, day of joy as we have the opportunity to send Adam out to be a senior pastor uh, in California at Placerita Baptist Church. And uh, we uh, have felt so blessed, Adam, to have you here with your lovely family. It's been a joy for us to watch your family become a family here. Lisa came seven and a half years ago with Anna inside and uh, gave birth to Anna and then four more. And uh, we just have had a blast watching your family grow and develop here at Lakeside. And um, uh, I guess the the greatest compliment I could give to Adam, and if you were here last night, you heard me say this at at, at their reception, but um, if I had passed on uh, or moved on in the last uh, seven and a half years, um, Adam could have very easily stepped into the role of senior pastor, and this church wouldn't have missed a beat. He's truly been a, a, a co-laborer in Christ, a partner in ministry. Uh, as Paul said so often of his co-laborers, um, that they refreshed him often, and that was uh, has been the case for Adam. He's been nothing but a blessing, nothing but a joy, uh, really a gift from God to me personally, um, to be my friend and to be a co-laborer in Christ. He's sharpened me. He's, be, he's made me a better pastor um, just by his interaction with me and always pushing me, challenging me, encouraging me, uh, never letting me get comfortable um, just because of his zeal and his passion for Christ, his zeal and passion for the church. And so uh, you're going to be greatly missed, brother, by me and by our entire uh, family and our church family. And uh, God has used him to have a significant uh, impact in our own children's lives. We we were kind of self-serving when we went to find a youth pastor because we knew he would have a huge impact in in our own family and the lives of our own children. And so we thank you for what, just the investment you made in Zach, Hannah, and Jacob over these years. And and I know that uh, I speak for all the families that have uh, had the privilege of having our children, our young people, uh, with Adam uh, in, in the student ministry. So... Anyway, Adam's going to come and preach one last sermon to us here at Lakeside before he leaves tomorrow morning, and so why don't we give Adam a a warm Lakeside welcome this morning as he comes to preach. So everybody's asking me, why are we moving to California? It's amazing the kind of comments I get from uh, different people in the culture. They're like, you're moving to California? Why would you do that? That's because they need the gospel, right? California needs the gospel. So you pray for us as we have planned to head out tomorrow morning. We're going to pack in the van with all seven of us and uh, take a three- or four-day trek out to Los Angeles, California, where I'll start next Sunday on Father's Day at Placerita Baptist Church. And so we are just so grateful to this body, Lakeside Bible Church. Each and every one of you have meant so much to us and uh, will forever be indebted uh, to your, um, just to your care for us and serving us so well. And I particularly want to say uh, thanks to Ken, who's just been a great mentor, a great blessing, a great pastor. He's going to come out a little bit later this summer and preach at our installation service. And uh, we're just so privileged to have grown under you and uh, through our elders here and uh, just the deacons, the whole body, all the parents. We just love each and every one of you. You know, while I was in uh, New Zealand with Ken and Kelly, I just was able to admire his expertise in cutting it straight, just message after message, just preaching God's word faithfully. And there was that one young man he talked about after Ken preached a message on taking communion that uh, you needed to be a believer in order to really participate in the elements of taking a part of that ordinance. And there was this one young guy who had been in the church all his life, raised in the church, and for whatever reason, God used that message that Ken preached to pierce his heart. And that night, uh, before he left, he grabbed another uh, pastor of the church where he was presently attending and uh, gave his heart to the Lord. 
And uh, what a, just a great, great testimony of the preaching of God's Word. And then the next morning, unknown to me, Scott Artavanis and myself had been invited to go up in a small airplane just to get a little tour of Hawke's Bay there in the North Island in New Zealand. So I wasn't going to pass that opportunity up, only to find out that the guy who just gave his heart to the Lord was the pilot. And I thought to myself, oh no, <laughs> he got saved last night. The Lord's going to take us all home today. Maybe I shouldn't get on this airplane. So I got on it anyway, and the Lord was gracious to give us a great tour and make it back safely to the ground. But I really thought maybe that was why the Lord saved in the night before. So the only time I've ever been kind of depressed, somebody got saved, you know. But <laughs> hey, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Matthew chapter 16, and we'll be in verse 13 through really through verse 19. If you need to grab an outline off the back table, that would be most helpful if you're trying to take notes or keep up with the message. And uh, we'll just enjoy this time together. I prepared this message to preach in New Zealand. It was a, a conference on the church. And I thought maybe this would be appropriate to give to you, uh, being how as you've been our church over these last seven and a half years, and we'll forever uh, view you as um, God's uh, God's instruments in his hands to shape and encourage and mold us into what God uh, wants us to be. And so the, the, the title for today's message is, uh, Is the Church Really Necessary? The Reason Why You Can't Afford to Miss Church. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I want to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to dive into your word. We've been so encouraged through the singing of your saints, the testimony of what you did in New Zealand, the opportunity, God, to reflect on your mercies ever new. Every morning as the sun rises, God, we know your mercies are new. And God, I pray that you would minister to us through your holy word. God, that you would teach us through your son, Jesus Christ, what he taught his disciples so long ago, that you are the head of the church and that you've given the keys uh, of the kingdom to those who would follow after you, leading and guiding the church under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I've got to admit, I've kind of enjoyed thoroughly growing up all my life in the Bible Belt. Many of you know I was raised in the best state of the Union, Georgia. Try to teach our youth group about that. And uh, so, but growing up in Georgia, then I had a little hiatus out to California. That's kind of the other side of the world, as you know. But being back in Texas kind of feels like I've been back in the South, back in the Bible Belt. I mean, where else can you live when there's like, there's like a Chick-fil-A on every corner? You know, where, where else can you live when you go to the doctor and your doctor's a Christian and your dentist is a Christian and your bus driver is a Christian, and even the teachers in the public school are all Christians. In fact, when I moved here seven and a half years ago, I found out after visiting with all my neighbors that every neighbor in our cul-de-sac claimed to be a Christian. But I've also noticed over the last few years that few of them ever go to church. So really, the question today is, is church really necessary? I mean, if you live in a Christian culture where we all seem to know about God, talk about God, and we live as if we're Christians, is church really, really necessary? Well, I would answer that question by asking another question, and that question would be this. Is Christ necessary? If your answer as a Christian is, well, of course Christ is necessary, then I would say, well, that's the answer to is the church necessary? You see, if the Lord Jesus Christ is necessary, 
in your life to bring you joy, to save you from your sins, to grow you in his spirit, then I would say that the greatest tool that the Lord Jesus Christ uses to do that in your life is the church. Is the church necessary? Absolutely. You can't really have one without the other. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you're in Christ, you are automatically placed in his, what? Church. It's impossible to be in Christ and not be in the church. And so you really can never divorce the two as if one is necessary and one's, ah, just if I need to. You know, just if we feel like going to church or really being plugged in a local church. I mean, I'm going to be plugged into Christ, but being plugged in a local church, I'm not so sure. Well, rest assured this morning that if you're not plugged in Christ's church, it may be that you're not plugged in to Christ. You see, Christ is the head of the church. We are the body of the church. And how else are we to love Christ but to show our devotion to him by loving his church? Fifty-nine times in the New Testament, we're commanded to practice the one another's, to love one another, to be at peace with one another, uh, to be devoted to one another, to carry one another's burdens, to be patient with one another in love, to be kind and compassionate to one another, to forgive each other. To consider others as better than ourselves, to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to admonish one another, encourage one another, pray for one another. How else can we carry out these commands, which are really ways that we can be a blessing to one another? How can we carry these out if we're not a part of the local church? You see, Christ saves us, and he puts us in his universal church because we are the church. We are the bride of Christ. But I would say even if you're in the universal church, he desires that you would also be part of that local body, that local assembly where week after week and month after month, you could be both blessed and be a blessing to someone else. It could be as simple as playing softball. It could be as simple as serving in the nursery. It could be as simple as having your your kids plugged in to Word of Life. It could be as simple as you being a part of a small group where you can really live life on life with one another. How else are you going to honor your Lord if you're not totally tied into the local church? Listen to me. All you need is Christ, but you can't have a relationship with Christ without having a relationship with his church. You need the church like a child needs his mom or dad. You need the church like a teenager needs a cell phone. (laughs) You need the church like the Miami Heat needs LeBron James. I mean, you just got to have the church. And the goal is that the church would be your all, that just as Christ is your all, you would recognize that you can't afford to miss church on a regular basis because you can't afford to miss Christ on a regular basis basis. The church is God's greenhouse for you, where he grows you and protects you and prunes you and reproduces you in the lives of others. The church is God's family for you, where you have instant brothers and sisters, moms and dads, grandfathers and grandmothers, all in the Lord, part of your family. The church is God's gift for you. His greatest gift to you was his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But along with this gift came a lifelong membership to the greatest institution on the earth, the church. Well, this morning, I want us to look at two truths about Christ and his church so that we may grow in our commitment to Christ and his church. And the first heading is this. First major point is the confession that Jesus is the heralded Christ. We see that here in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, let me just pause right there just to paint a little bit of context, if I might. Jesus, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, has been calling Jews to repent and to believe in himself as the king of the Jews. And as he's gone through these first, um, the first half, really, of Matthew, he's had a, a really a public ministry focusing on and calling Jews out, identifying himself as really the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. 
Here in uh, this chapter, Jesus decides to get away a little bit, away from Jerusalem, away from Galilee, and he heads up into this little town called Caesarea Philippi. Now, that's different than the Caesarea that's on, on the Mediterranean coast there. It's up about 25 miles north of Galilee. It's in kind of a more mountainous area. Uh, for those of you who went with us to Israel a few years ago, we actually went to Caesarea Philippi, and you might remember we took a hike around where all those cool springs were, and the springs all pour down into the Sea of Galilee, and uh, and it's kind of, uh, kind of like a mountain retreat. And while they're there in, there in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus begins to ask his disciples questions. Really, just one question. I mean, in many ways, this is like the final exam for the disciples to see whether or not they really understood what Jesus was all about. Oftentimes, the disciples are the one asking Jesus the question, but in this case, we see Jesus asking them the question. Here's the question he asked in the middle of verse 13. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In a way, when he asked this question, he's saying, who do others say that the Son of Man is? And when he asked that question by using the phrase Son of Man, he really kind of gives away the answer in the question. Here's what I mean by that. In the New Testament, the Messiah, Christ, is referred to as the Son of Man and the Son of God. Jesus chose to refer to himself most often as the Son of Man. And that phrase, Son of Man, would have been remembered by any Orthodox Jew as coming from the Old Testament and being a title of the Messiah or the Christ that would come. That's given in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Daniel gives this prophecy I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Serve who? The son of man. And that he should have dominion in an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And so you could say really throughout the rest of the Old Testament, people might have been thinking, man, who is this son of man? I mean, he is on par with the Ancient of Days. He will have a kingdom that will know no end. He will have dominion over all. And so when Jesus asked the question, who do others say that the Son of Man is, he's kind of already giving the answer. He's referring to himself. He is the Son of Man. But they answer the question, following along with Jesus' teaching style here. Verse 14, they said, some say John the Baptist. We could just pause there for a moment. I'm sure you remember John the Baptist, the wild man who was dressed in camel hair, lived in the wilderness. He loved to eat locusts dipped in honey. I mean, he was that rugged man's man. I mean, if John the Baptist were alive today, I'm sure he would be a Texan. Don't you agree? I mean, he was gruff. He didn't care what others thought about him. He was radical in what he believed for the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe people were a little confused because John and Jesus actually preached the exact same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so some people were saying, well, maybe this Jesus guy, John the Baptist, had since been beheaded. Maybe this is Jesus or John the Baptist resurrected. He's like John the Baptist. Uh, but, you know, maybe, maybe they forgot that Jesus and John actually ministered together for at least a short time while on earth. Maybe they forgot even the story about Jesus being baptized when he came to the River Jordan. And John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, it's impossible for Jesus to be John the Baptist because they're two separate men. It's also interesting to note that John the Baptist is never recorded in Scripture as even performing one miracle. But he was a fiery preacher, and he preached about repentance, and so maybe it was on that subject that they got John the Baptist and Jesus confused. So some said he's John the Baptist. Others said, well, this Jesus guy, he's like, he's like Elijah. You may remember Elijah of 1 Kings who defeated the 450 prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. He was the same prophet that prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years and God closed the windows of heaven to not rain and then he prayed it would rain and it rained again. This is the same prophet who, part, who parted the Jordan River. It's the same prophet who was caught up in a whirlwind on a fiery chariot up into heaven in fact, after he ascended into heaven in this fiery chariot, they searched for his body for three days. 
and they couldn't find him anywhere. And later in the Old Testament, there's prophecy given that before the end comes that Elijah would return. And so maybe some people are thinking, well, hey, this Jesus guy, maybe this is Elijah. You know, Elijah did a lot of powerful miracles while he was on earth. We just attested to some of those. Jesus did a lot of miracles. Maybe Jesus is Elijah. So maybe he's John the Baptist. Verse 14 says, some say Elijah and others who? Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of Judah's, Judah's greatest prophets. He's known as the weeping prophet, had a lot of compassion for his people. Jesus actually wept when he came to Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I prayed for you that you would repent and you would not. So there's certainly some similarities there. Jeremiah had called for Judah to repent. Jeremiah had never married. Jesus never married. Jeremiah uh, preached also fiery sermons, if you will, about repentance It's also interesting to note that Jeremiah is said by some Jewish tradition to have taken the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense out of the temple and hid them somewhere on Mount Nebo in order to keep them away from the Babylonians who were coming to destroy the temple. And so since some Jews thought that before the Messiah would come and set up his kingdom, that maybe the Messiah would grab the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense and set it up in its rightful place in Jerusalem. And since Jesus taught a little bit about destroying the temple and how he would rebuild the temple, it's logical to see how some people may have confused Jesus as being Jeremiah. Or maybe Jesus is just one of the prophets. Verse 14 says he could be anybody. He could have been any of the prophets. Just name them. He could have been Isaiah. He could have been Ezekiel. He could have been Micah. He could have been any one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, if somebody said those kind of things about me, I would take it as a great compliment. You know, if anyone ever said, hey, Adam, your preaching is like that of John the Baptist, I'd probably think, man, I must be a pretty good preacher. If somebody said, hey, you remind me of the power of Elijah, I'd be like, wow, that's, that's a pretty nice compliment. So for you and I, that might appear some great compliment, but you've got to understand, for the Lord Jesus Christ, this was no compliment, but this was a great insult. You see, they're comparing Jesus Christ to mere human beings. They're comparing God, very God, the divine, Jesus who was there at the beginning, who's the agent of creation, who's the redeemer of all mankind. They're confusing him as just being another person. And so for him... It was actually a great insult. That would be like saying Tim Duncan for the San Antonio Spurs plays basketball like a fifth grader. I mean, that would be like saying the U.S. president is as powerful as the beta club president of the local high school. That that would be like saying Bill Gates is as rich as a homeless hobo. I mean, those aren't compliments. That's That's like insulting these men who have made great accomplishments. Well, infinitely more so. It's an insult to the king of kings, the son of man, on par with the ancient of days, whose kingdom will know no end, just to say that he's like one of these other men. Well, unfortunately, that's exactly what's going on in our world even today, in the world of plurality that we live in. One religion's no better than another. You have other religious leaders like Muhammad or Buddha or you name whoever is out there in the culture, and our culture treats each one of these men as what? All the same. They're all good guys. They lead their religion. They all teach similar things. Well, here today, I'm here to tell you it's just not so. You have one who is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, and everyone else, every other faith, every other man in the faith doesn't compare at all to Jesus Christ. And this is such an important point for the disciples to get. Jesus wanted to make abundantly sure that his disciples understood loud and clear who he was. And that's why he goes from there to verses 15 and 16, asking the disciples. He he asked them, who do others say that I am? And now he turns it on them. And he says, who do you say that I am? In verse 15, he said to them, who do you say that I am? He wants to know what they think. That's just how it is with Jesus. He's not always concerned about what others think. We don't have the right to really sit here and philosophize or think about what others think, and it could be this, could be that. No, 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 no. On judgment day, when you stand before God, he's not going to ask you, what do others think about me? But he would, in a sense, ask you, who do you say that I am? The way you answer that question 
in a sense, determines your eternal destiny. This is the whole point of why Jesus came, not only to be our redeemer, but to teach us truth and to teach us that he is the truth. And my friends, popular opinion doesn't count when it comes to theology. Personal commitment does. And what Jesus wants to know is, what do these people say about me? Well, have you ever been asked that question? Maybe you just assume you know who Jesus is because your parents know who Jesus is. Or you assume that you know who Jesus is because you live in the Bible Belt and you've heard about Jesus your whole life. Have you really committed to him? Do you really know what he did for you? I love the book, More Than a Carpenter, by Josh McDowell, where in that book, I believe he compile some of C.S. Lewis's thoughts, talking about who is Jesus. You really only have three options when asked the question, uh, who, who is Jesus Christ? You could say that he's a lunatic. Some people uh, think Jesus is a lunatic. He has grandiose ideas. He thinks he's God. It still happens today, even in our culture. Some people think there's someone really famous. I worked in a mental health hospital for six weeks. Notice I said I worked there. I wasn't admitted there. And uh, while I was working in the mental health hospital, two guys got in a fight one day, arguing with each other that they were Jesus Christ. And the other guy said, no, you're not Jesus. I'm Jesus Christ. This huge ruckus. I mean, we had to run down the hallway and give them each a shot of Haldol and put them down for the afternoon. Let them take a break because they both were convinced in their mind that they were Jesus Christ. Well, maybe Jesus was like that. He could have been a lunatic, grandiose ideas, had people following him. Or maybe Jesus was a liar. You know, we don't really think of Jesus as a liar. A few people today would even say that. But if you think about it logically, if, if, if Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. Pretty clear, right? Jesus' words. This is not what I say about Jesus. This is what he says about himself. So if someone were to say, okay, I understand that, but... You can still get to heaven by being a good person, or you can still get to heaven by joining another faith. I mean, don't all roads of faith lead to heaven? That's what our culture says, right? That there's just many ways you could go. Well, what they're actually saying is that Jesus is a liar. How could Jesus Christ be a great man and an incredible leader of the faith of Christianity if he was purposefully deceiving others? if he on purpose lied to others about not being who he said he was. And so maybe Jesus is a lunatic, maybe he's a liar, or thirdly, maybe Jesus is Lord. Maybe he really is exactly who he said he was. Maybe he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is to be worshipped. And that's part of the point that he's making right here in this passage in Caesarea Philippi, Who do people say that I am? And he's saying, I am the Christ. And then Peter catches a hold of it here, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You guys know that Christ is not a last name like John Smith, or as my kids say, John Sniff. Jesus Christ, it's a title. It's Jesus Messiah Messiah Christ means anointed one and refers specifically to the Messiah who will save his people from their sins. In the Old Testament, this idea of anointing was really reserved for uh, really three different offices. You would be anointed with oil if you were going to be in the office of prophet, priest, or king. Right? And so when, uh, Jesus definitely fulfilled the office of being a prophet. He was prophesied by Moses back in Deuteronomy 15, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 18:15. Moses wrote this, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, in the sense of being a mediator between God and His people, from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen." And so Jesus fulfilled the role of being prophet. He also fulfilled the role or the office of being priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Well, how can we do that? We have a high priest. And so Jesus was the prophet, he was the priest, and then Jesus is the king right? He's the king in the Davidic covenant, ultimately referring to Christ. 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up 
your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so Jesus is the prophet, he's the priest, he's the king. He is the Messiah. Peter got it right. You are the Christ. He's the son of the living God. God, he's on par with God. That's basically what he's saying. He's the same as God. He is this fulfillment. And so then Jesus makes a very important statement here. He says, Peter, who revealed this to you? Or he points out who revealed this to Peter in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Listen to me. Don't take for granted for one moment that if you understand who Jesus Christ is today and that you could say along with Peter that he is the Christ, that somehow you figured it out, that somehow it was your mom or dad who ultimately taught you or your pastor Because Jesus makes it abundantly clear, blessed are you, because this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, not by itself. I mean, God uses flesh and blood to point to his word, and it's the Holy Spirit through the word of God. Ultimately here, he said, because my Father has revealed this to you. If you're here and you understand the gospel, you only understand the gospel by the sovereign grace of God. And that ought to be what gets our attention today, that Peter's statement here is really a blessing and an evidence of the doctrine of regeneration being a sovereign act of God to reveal himself to Peter so that Peter could get it right. Everybody else was getting it wrong. They were smart people. They had studied in the Torah. They had studied in Jerusalem. They were Old Testament scholars who got it wrong. But Peter, far less trained than some of these other scholars of the Old Testament at the time were, got it exactly right. And he's blessed not because he's smart, but because God had revealed it to him. Did you know the same is true for you today? That if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you were to answer just like Peter did, that Jesus is the Christ, you are blessed because God has revealed it to you. Consider to what, what Jesus says to the 72. Remember when Jesus commissioned the 72 and he sent them out and they did miracles in Christ's name. And Jesus even says, while you were gone, I, I gave them authority to tread over serpents and scorpions, over all the power of the enemy. He said, nothing shall hurt you. And then they got back and they did all these things. And Jesus said this, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written In heaven, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What an incredible reminder to us this morning that your salvation is an act of sovereign God who pulled the scales off of your eyes so that you could see Jesus for who he really is. He's the Savior. He's your Redeemer. He is our God. And Jesus wanted to make sure that his disciples got it, and he wants to make sure that you got it today as well. Have no doubt. You can't figure these things out. They must be revealed to you. God reveals himself through his word, by his spirit, and through faith that he grants to those who repent and believe that your eyes can be opened to make this same profession that Peter made, that Jesus is the Christ. Well, secondly, this morning, now that we see that establishment of Jesus being the heralded Christ, Christ, let's look at number two, the conviction that Jesus is the head of the church. Now, remember our introduction, you can't have one without the other. And so in this passage about Jesus being Christ, he instantly and immediately goes to talk about the church. He's the heralded Christ, and he is the head of the church. And in verse 18, we read a little bit about the greatness of the church. 
Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail over it. I mean, the only thing greater than the church is Christ. Christ and his church, again, are not diametrically opposed to each other. Instead, one flows out of the other. The church is great because Christ is great, and the church is an extension of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. You and I are the body of the church. And so here we see Christ, the greatness of the church because of the foundation of the church. Again, in verse 18 here, we see who the foundation is. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Let's talk for a minute about the foundation of the church. What's going on here? I mean, this is the first time in the Bible where actually the word church is even used. The word for church is ecclesia. It means called out ones, to be called out of darkness into light. In the Old Testament, there's a focus on the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant community of God. And to be part of the covenant community, you needed to be a Jew or a proselyte, someone converted to the Jewish faith. And there's a tremendous focus in the Old Testament on externals, which all serve as a picture to point us to Christ. All sacrifices in the Old Testament point to the substitutionary atonement of Christ. All festivals point to the joy of satisfaction that we have in Jesus. All covenants in the Old Testament point to the new covenant that we have in Jesus. And so in the New Testament, here, Jesus is transitioning from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and he's saying no longer is the focus on just being a Jew or some of these externals, but the focus is on being in Christ. And being in Christ means you're in his church because it's something totally new. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. Nowhere do we see this clearer than in Ephesians chapter 2, which is really the whole book of Ephesians is all about Christ and his church. If you know anything about Ephesians 2, you know those first 10 verses are all about how you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins, but he made you alive in Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then what is verse 11 through 22 all about? So Ephesians 2, the first half, he establishes you're in Christ. You've been given faith. You're a child of God. You've been blessed to be in the body. Verses 11 through 22 are all about being in his church. It's all about the fact that the two now become one, that there's this new man, that new man being the church, that we can be built up together. There's no longer a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. You see, in Christ, we're all one. And so he came to preach Christ to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure, that's the church being joined together, grows in, holy, in, in a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What are we learning about? We're learning about Christ and his church. If it's important that we understand the heralded Christ, it's just as important that we understand that Christ is the head of the church. And so the first thing God did was save you from your sin. The second thing he did was put you in his church. I mean, you understand that, right? If you're a Christian, you're automatically placed in the church of the living God. And if you're in the church of the living God, i.e. universal church, then God also expects you and desires that you would be a part of his local body that somewhere, somehow, you would be under pastors and elders, that you might serve as a deacon or deaconess, that you might practice the one another's in God's local church. And so the obvious question now, again, back to verse 18, is, well, who is the church built on? If that's the ecclesia, the church, that's what Christ is building, who is it built on? Is it built on Jesus, or is it built on Peter? You can understand how this could be a little confusing, right? He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So let me ask the question, is the church built on Peter or someone else? Well, if you're here this morning and you have a Roman Catholic background, maybe you've been taught that the church, the Roman Catholic church at least, is built on Peter, who is known as the first pope who throughout centuries has been succeeded by other popes known as the vicar of Christ. And Roman Catholics, without any hesitation, will claim 
that they are uh, the true church, and they're built on the popes and the councils of the church. Well, let me tell you something this morning. Nothing could be further from the truth. When Jesus says that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, he's not talking about Peter. This can't be true for two reasons. Let me give you two reasons why it can't be built on Peter. The first is it doesn't make any sense grammatically. Doesn't make any sense grammatically. I tell you, you are Peter. The word there is Petros, P E T R O S. It's a masculine um, uh, word there referring to Peter. And he says, You are Peter, and on this rock, that's Petra, P E T R A. It's a feminine word. So just grammatically, it doesn't make sense to say, You're Peter, and I'm building my church on the rock, Petra. Petros, Petra. Grammatically, it doesn't make any sense. He's not saying he's building it literally on Peter. I believe that he's saying that he's building the church on Peter's confession, what we just learned, the fact that Jesus is the Christ. He's saying, in a sense, Peter, you got it right. Jesus is the Christ. I'm not building it on you. I'm building it on your belief. I'm building it on your, um, your declaration of Christ. So it doesn't make any sense grammatically that, that the church would literally be built on Peter, and it certainly doesn't make any sense theologically. I mean, think about it. Since when did Peter become the foundation of the church? I mean, Peter was great at all, right? We look up to him. We love Peter. We love us some Peter. It makes us feel good about ourselves when we mess up. Ah, Peter messed up. But if Peter is really the foundation of the church, wouldn't it be a cracked foundation? I mean, Peter rebuked the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus looked at him and said, Get behind me, Satan. Peter um, denied Jesus Christ. Peter later was confronted by Paul for confusing the gospel in Galatians 2. And so while Peter was a great man, an incredible apostle, he is not the foundation of the church. Who is the church built on? Well, we sang about it this morning. The church is built on the cornerstone, Jesus Christ alone. The church is not built on people, it's built on the Savior Nevertheless, we could say that the prophets and the apostles were inspired and infallible, and as they spoke the inerrant words of God recorded in Scripture, that served as part of that foundation, not themselves literally, but their teaching. Consider Acts 4, 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, or 1 Corinthians 3.11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so we see not only is Jesus the foundation of the church, but he's also the builder of the church. Notice verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. Now, when Jesus says that, he's not talking about mega churches. He's not talking about your church going from 100 to 200, from 200 to 400. Not necessarily in attendance. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about he'll build his church because in order to be in the church, you have to be what? You have to be saved. It has to be revealed to you that Jesus is the Christ. It's through conversion that Jesus grows the church. And he says, I will build my church. He's the ultimate builder of the church. What a great reminder for us today that that we live in this America evangelical consumerism where people build large churches based on personalities or programs, anything but the Word of God. Well, my friends, that's not really growing the church at all. That's just having a huge group of people gather together. Some of them are better than others, as we know, but some of them are a, a, a complete mockery of what it means to be the real church, truly born again and living out uh, life under the authority of the Word of God. And so Jesus is the builder of the church through salvation. It's him who grants salvation to each and every person and builds his church. And not only do we see he's the builder of the church, this all leads to the invincibility of the church, the invincibility of the church. Look at the end of verse 18. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Satan can take his best shot, but the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The gates of hell, or Hades, often represent the evil forces of Satan attacking the church of Jesus Christ. And praise God that the forces of the devil are ineffective against the forces of God. However, if you think about the word gates, you know, you don't usually think of the word gate as an offensive weapon, right? You don't be like, hey, I'm going to attack you with my gate. And so if you think of it in that way, gates are not so much offensive weapons of warfare. Rather, they are defensive protectors either to keep others out 
or to keep captives in. Like you can't get out of the gates of the jail if they're barred in and you're inside. And so what I'm saying here is that, that the word hell can also be translated in the NASB as the word Hades corresponds to the Hebrew word Sheol, which refers uh, not necessarily to hell, but to the place of the dead. And therefore, when the terms gates and Hades are understood in this way, it becomes clear that Jesus was declaring that death has no power to hold God's redeemed people captive. In other words, the gates of Hades cannot prevail over spiritual life. You see, if it's Jesus that's granting life, revealing himself to people, and he gives you life, the gates of hell can't prevail against that. They can't fight against that because you're no longer in the grasp of death. You are now living a spiritual life. Consider Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Or what Jesus said in John 14, 19, yet a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also live. It's through Christ that the church lives on. Through Christ, the gates of hell cannot keep the church from fulfilling its God-given, Christ-conquering, spirit-saturated mission. Consider Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. I mean, in light of the fact that Jesus was trying to make it clear to his disciples that he would be crucified, but he would rise again, he's also giving them hope that death itself could never permanently overpower them and keep them captive. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, the church is invincible because Christ is invincible. He has provided spiritual life and victory for you. Well, now that we've seen the greatness of the church, let's look at the governance of the church. And verse 19 kind of hints at what the rest of the New Testament spells out as how the New Testament church is to be governed. Verse 19 reads, I will give you talking to Peter now, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We're talking here a little bit about the governance of the church. Different churches are certainly governed in different ways. You have some churches that are congregational churches that everybody has a vote. You have other churches that have a pastor and a deacon board. That's how a lot of Southern Baptist churches are run. You have other churches like this one that are elder-led churches, led by a group, a plurality of elders. You still have other churches that are led by a presbytery or a session or a synod. The point of the passage that I want to make to you isn't necessarily what kind of church governance you use, but I just want to make this point that Christ desires that someone lead the church. And someone has responsibility to lead the church under the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's almost as if we're reading here about the designation of authority. It's going from Jesus to Peter. Again, the Catholics may say, oh, there you go. He's the first pope. Yeah, but it's then given from the office of apostle to the office of elder. It's not like he gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter only. And Peter now lives for the rest of, uh, of the New Testament church age, somehow controlling things, holding these keys. The idea is there's, there's, there's this designation of authority given by Christ to the apostles, and in return, the apostles give that to the elders of the local church. In fact, to hold your place there in Matthew and turn with me to Titus so you can see it, see it for yourself, Paul here tells Titus that he wants him to set up elders there in the local church. And he talks about how uh, Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He goes on to talk about the qualification of elders. Here we see the succession of the office of apostleship really to the office of elder. 
We can read about elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 7. talks about the office of an elder. They must be men who, are, uh, who have a desire, who are above reproach, have the ability to teach. They must be godly men who are always functioning under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, we see the point. The church is always to be governed. And not only is there that, uh, that designation of authority to the church leaders, there, there's a distribution of responsibility. He says, whatever would have been bound on earth would have been bound in heaven, loosed on earth, loosed in heaven. Again, emphasizing here responsibility. The church has a responsibility to hold its members accountable and to encourage them and to love them and to teach them and to protect them. And this is a very serious job that the apostles had, today present-day elders had. It's a very important job, very sobering job. First Timothy 4.16 says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for so, by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Or first Peter to elders writes this, I exhort the other, excuse me, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Listen carefully to the direction given to elders, not domineering over those in your charge, being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, there's a succession of Christ being the head of the church, to the apostles being the beginning of the early church, to the elders today being those that would govern the church under Christ. And elders are never to lord over or domineer in any way over the people that attend the local church, but rather to serve them as an example and nevertheless, we're all commanded by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would not be of advantage to you. Well, this all leads us really to the determination of divinity. You see, Adam, you're getting a little too fancy in your outline. What does that really mean? Well, let me explain it this way. Have you ever known that sometimes there's like a problem between what's going on in the church and maybe that leadership team? You ever seen that happen? Okay, the leadership team is trying to govern the church in a godly way. And let's assume for a minute that the leadership team are godly, humble men acting in accordance with their role and responsibility as God-appointed elders. Okay, let's just make that assumption. That's not always the case, but let's make that assumption. Let's say that there's a member of the church who all of a sudden feels like, you know what, I'm not in agreement with this, or even worse, I'm going to live in my sin, and you can't tell me that I can't, you fill in the blank, get a divorce for an unbiblical reason, live an alternate lifestyle, um, embezzle funds and, and how I run my business. You can't tell me what to do because I'm a Christian, and I can do whatever I want to do, and you can't tell me otherwise. Who are you to tell me? Well, maybe that person has never seen verse 19, which makes it abundantly clear. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, to bind means to forbid. And so whatever the church forbids on earth shall have already been forbidden where? In heaven. In other words, heaven always sides with the church. As long as the church is functioning in accordance with the word of God given from heaven, they're one and the same. If heaven, i.e. God, has revealed to us his word of how to govern the local church, and there's an issue of morality or an issue of doctrine or an issue of division, and people want to make their case to be able to do whatever they want to do, my friends, let me soberly remind you this morning, heaven has already cited and heaven has sided with the leaders of the local church. You say, Adam, that sounds so self-serving. What if those men are in sin themselves? Then they ought to be called out on it. For as soon as they're in sin themselves, they've given up the privilege of serving as a governing shepherd of that flock. But we certainly don't have the right as members of a church to say to them, you know what, I can do whatever I want. I mean, this happened in our own family about 10 years ago. My sister went through an ungodly divorce, and her previous husband swore 
that he was a Christian and it was just fine for him to live in open adultery. And when the elders of that church tried to discipline him lovingly, patiently, but very firmly, he completely resisted and said, you know what, I'm still a Christian. I can do whatever I want. You guys can't tell me that, you know, you can't tell me I'm wrong. Nobody's perfect. That was really the attitude, which is really a common attitude for many today who want to live in their sin and still claim Christ. Well, let me just remind you, heaven is already sided with the elders of the local church. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. To loose means to permit. So whatever the leaders of the church bind is to be forbidden. Whatever the elders of the church loose means to be permitted. Now, that can sound legalistic, and that's why wise elders never bind anything the Bible doesn't bind. And they don't loose anything the Bible doesn't loose. The elders are always functioning in accordance with Scripture. And so ultimately, it's the Scripture that's the authority, but sometimes somebody on earth has to carry it out. Sometimes the black and white pages of Scripture dictate that the leaders lead. So wise would be the young man and the young woman this morning who would joyfully submit to their elders' counsel. And wise would the elders be who humbly serve under the chief shepherd, realizing this is an awesome privilege and responsibility that the elders would never domineer or never lord over the body in any way, but rather serve as an example to them, to love them. But I'm just telling you through my short experience as being a pastor slash elder, there's times where somebody has to lead. And there's times where somebody's got to make a decision who's right and who's wrong in this issue. We don't have time to look at the examples this morning, but certainly this is true when it comes to doctrinal issues in the church. In 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20, where Alexander and Hymenaeus were handed over to Satan over a doctrinal issue. It's true over moral issues in 1 Corinthians 5, all the way down 1 through 11, when there was a man practicing sexual immorality that Paul said, you got to kick out of the church. It's true of all other issues in 1 Corinthians 6, talking about if you're in a lawsuit, you go to the leaders of the church as believers, and why not rather be wrong to let the grace of God prevail and the gospel witness being part of your testimony instead of taking someone to court just to clean up some legal matter. The point is this, Christ died for the church, and he's the heralded Christ, and Christ also governs the church, and we have the responsibility to submit ourselves to that which Christ died for. So maybe in closing, we could just say, what's the take home from this message? You can't afford to miss church because you can't afford to miss Christ on a regular basis. And so I would encourage you, be at church. You say, Adam, I don't have to be at church every Sunday. We've already established the fact I'm saved. All I need is Christ. So I don't really have to be at church. Not so fast. If you love Christ, you will love his church. And that's why I love Lakeside Bible Church, is I see so many of you totally involved in your local church. I see you on Sunday morning. I see you in equipping hour. I get to hang out with you on Wednesday nights. I see you going on mission trips and up here serving in the week. I'm, I'm always shocked how I come up here to work and all through the week there is a busy, busyness of people coming and serving and giving of their time and, and being a part of this church. And if you're here this morning and church is kind of down on that lower rung and your ladder of priorities, let me just remind you, if you love Christ, you will love his church. You can't afford to miss church because you can't afford to miss Christ. Secondly, you can't afford to miss church because you can't afford to miss eternal life. You say, well, Adam, what are you talking about? I thought eternal life came through Christ, not the church. Well, it does. But don't forget, in addressing the church, he talks about the gates of hell shall not prevail over the church. It's part of the demonstration of your involvement in the local church that gives you some assurance that you're a child of God which leads, obviously, to eternal life. Not to be confused, going to church doesn't save you. It doesn't grant you one ounce of saving grace. It's just evidence that if you love Christ, you're going to be a part of that church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail because you're in Christ. You have a new life. Thirdly, you can't afford to miss church because you can't afford to miss the accountability of heaven. You see, heaven sides with the leaders of the church, and each one of us in our life need a shepherd. We're all sheep who wander astray each to our own way, and Jesus is our ultimate shepherd, but he's appointed apostles who then in succession appointed elders to lead the local church humbly, patiently, with a sobriety 
but also with a godly care and a loving heart. And if you're ever in confused, well, who's right, the elders or this other person? As long as the elders are functioning in secession, in, in sync with the Bible, heaven has already decided what they've decided. God forbid that they would ever decide anything that heaven hasn't already decided, and heaven has revealed it to us through God's holy word. You know what? You guys are blessed people to be in a church like Lakeside Bible Church. Don't ever take for granted that these godly men meet regularly. They pray for you. They weep for you. They're burdened by sin when it enters into this place. They delight in seeing God save both young and old. They delight in providing the ordinances of the local church through communion, uh, which is the Lord's Supper, and baptism. We are so very very blessed. And all this sermon was really designed to do is hopefully remind you that if you love Christ, you will love his church. You can't have one without the other. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage of scripture. What a great teaching from our Lord Jesus Christ to help us understand the proper place and priority of the local church. We confess, God, sometimes we kind of downplay church as maybe not being that important, maybe a part of our life that, uh, that we could take or leave at times. And I just pray, God, maybe from the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would just be reminded of not only do we want to be those who, like Peter, would give great proclamation to the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ, declaring him as the Messiah, that we would also partake of that blessed institution organization that you invented called the church. And it's the church that the gates of hell will never prevail. Thank you for leading this church with godly men, with people who want to uphold and pray for these godly men as they lead us. And God, help us all ultimately look to the ultimate shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is and will always be the head of the church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.